Welcome back to another edition of ES46560, Race Class Empire, the Olympics. I am Dr. Courtney Cox. So before we get into protests in the Olympic Games, a really kind of riveting week here at Race Class Empire, the Olympics, I wanted to do a little bit of housekeeping and think about some of the upcoming assignments. So the next critical essay is due May 4th. The first round were great. I think that there's a way that you connected collectively um, the history of the Olympic Games to where we are currently. The next essay will give you a few options. I'll provide some kind of guideline in terms of how you should approach your topic, but I want to think about the past few modules we'll we'll have since that critical essay we had before. So we will have environmental impact, protest and surveillance and terrorism are the three weeks of modules that kind of cover this time period. So what you'll want to do is pick one of those topics and really dig deep and think about either a case study, an individual thing, kind of an overview of how an issue like surveillance and terrorism is handled within the Olympics. Um, You can take a lot of what we'll be talking about deals with the 1972 Olympics next week. But I want to also think about the fact that you know, with the the film Richard Jewell that came out um, this past year, as well as all the kind of new surrounding information we have and know and think about regarding the 1996 terrorist attack in Atlanta, there's also a way you might want to think about that. You might want to think about how some of the Olympic sports we think of, such as the marathon, for example, has been significantly altered by a terrorist attack. If you think about the Boston Marathon, marathons are conducted very differently. So there's a lot of different directions you can go for each of these topics. I'm just giving you a few examples, but I want you to think about what your, this is a good time this week to think about what you'd like to do your essay on as we go through protests, if you choose that topic. As usual, there is a discussion board this week. And then looking forward, May 13th, um, on the syllabus, it says there's a final project abstract due. And again, what I want you to think about is you've been listening to me talk now. This is week five, um, halfway through here. And so I just want you to think about how you would position yourself on a podcast, what you would talk about as it relates to the Olympic Games. And so that final project abstract doesn't have to be something that's super nailed down. It's an overview, no more than one page, double-spaced, that really just describes what your topic is about, what you'd like to talk about. Pick a topic that you can find stuff, so I actually don't recommend trying to find documents from 1896, but also understand that I, as well as Lauren Goss, who is over in the archives at the U of O libraries and handles all things sports, she was originally going to be a very important part of this class, She's available. She is connected through Canvas. She is, has the exact same instructor settings that I have and is a great resource if you think about something that you might want to do, That especially if it ties in with something with the Olympic trials. Many of them have been held for track and field here in Eugene. If you think about um, wanting to work with something that delves into a specific Olympic Games. She has a lot of archival materials. There's digital archives that are also available to the U of O library. So there's a way to make this really dynamic. Um, So think about it less so as a research paper. You want to have a, a plethora of sources that will help guide you and help you as you're kind of writing the script of what this podcast looks like, sounds like, extra clips that you might want to bring in. 
but also be open to the fact that, you know, myself as well as Lauren are great resources to kind of help you shape your project. So feel free definitely to reach out to me. Let me know if you want to have a Zoom session and talk about um, your work a little further. Um, if you're if you're struggling to find an idea, I'm also happy to just help you brainstorm one. So use myself, use Lauren Goss as resources. I will post her email as well. It's Goss, G-O-S-S, and we'll work it out. I'll also be posting some podcast resources in terms of the um, editing process, recording a podcast. You do not need to buy anything. You do not need any additional resources. I really just want you to spend the next couple of weeks thinking about the content, what you'd like to present, and then we'll work on smoothing it out and working through workshopping your podcast as well as figuring out how to get everything cut down, edited, sounding good. Again, you do not need to spend any money on this class. You do not need to have any additional things purchased. Whatever you have, whether it's your phone, I can show you how to record a podcast on your phone. We'll work through all of that together. That's the 1968 hit by the Impressions titled, This is My Country. And I think in turning to protest this week and thinking about its impact in the Olympic Games, which as we have doubled and tripled down on throughout, we've heard the IOC talk about the Olympics as an apolitical space. And I think going through this week, let's just think about what the IOC is saying is important about keeping the Olympic Games so-called apolitical, what the athletes who are protesting are saying the role of the Olympics is in terms of visibility of various causes, and then what we feel as those that are taking in the Olympics as spectators, whether we're in the venue, whether we're reading about it at home or watching it on our TVs or online. I'd like to first look at Rule 50 of the Olympic Charter, and I've provided the Team USA version of what's distributed for athletes competing under the US Olympic Committee. And in Rule 50 Olympic Charter, what you need to know as an athlete, this document's made for athletes and states that Rule 50 has four main goals. To protect athletes, to prevent the over-commercialization of the games, and to keep Olympic venues free from advertising, to prevent the games from being used as a platform for protest, demonstration, or the promotion of political, religious, or racial propaganda. And finally, to define rules for sporting goods manufacturers and to prevent unauthorized commercial, political, religious, racial propaganda. So this is a little paternalistic for me in terms of thinking about how we're treating athletes, protecting them, um, and thinking about who determines what the over-commercialization of the games looks like. 
It's interesting to think about how this rule, Rule 50, combines both the two fears of Pierre de Coubertin, which was then, of course, handed down to Avery Brundage in terms of thinking about keeping the Olympic Games free of over-commercialization and politicization. And so it's interesting that these two issues are brought together um, with very different actors involved. So thinking about how Rule 50 is speaking to both companies like Nike and Adidas, but it's also speaking to athletes that are making individual decisions. So it's both an individual and an institutional policy that combines two very separate, seemingly separate issues. But knowing what we know about the history of the Olympics, they are the two things that were concerns in terms of keeping the game sacred or, or keeping them going. The idea that over-commercialization and being overtly political in the Olympic Games would lead to the Olympic demise. So one of the things I think is really interesting in thinking about this, this idea of keeping the games free from protest or the promotion of racial propaganda, for example. I'm thinking about how anthropology days are full of racial propaganda. I'm thinking about the 1936 Olympics were full of Nazi propaganda that's racialized, that's politicized in a particular way. Um, So in many ways, Rule 50 is a, a joke in terms of its actual execution, But let's continue thinking about what the IOC is saying Rule 50 gives us in terms of the Olympic Games. One thing is it's not only holding us to corporate sponsors and athletes, coaches, trainers, etc., your typical players you would think for a mega sporting event. It also applies to spectators. It says spectators are also expected to comply. So... While Rule 50 um, is said, quote, not intended to stifle public debate on any topic, end quote, I want to think about this week, is that true? It's important they're making this distinction. It's restricted to Olympic sites and venues and not social media. The next word is, however, it's a word that's very common in this document, quote, participants should make sure that their postings, blogs, and tweets conform to the Olympic spirit what is that, are dignified and in good taste, who determines that, and not discriminatory, offensive, hateful, defamatory, or otherwise illegal, end quote. There's really not a way to think about how these very subjective words can in many ways speak to how an Olympic athlete should conduct themselves on the internet. But I think it goes to a larger kind of blanket statement the IOC is making with Rule 50. The question near the end, what happens if I breach Rule 50? It says, quote, if the IOC is made aware of a potential breach of Rule 50, it will treat each case individually depending on what is said or done, end quote. So that really leaves the IOC open to punishing people very differently across the board, depending on what they're protesting, what they're wearing, what company is involved. There's a way that the IOC is protecting themselves from a very standardized practice in terms of how to handle so-called offenders to Rule 50. I also posted the Rule 50 updates for Tokyo 2020. And I really want to think about as we go through the very pointed statements and what they're kind of trying to specifically address in the updates. Now, the updates don't really add much in terms of the actual policy itself. 
But there is a way this statement is trying to say, we get it. There's a space the Olympics provides. It says, quote, that desire to drive change can naturally make it very tempting to use the platform of an appearance at the Olympic Games to make our point, end quote. So it's acknowledging that the Olympics are a particularly ripe space, and, and historically there's no denying, as we'll get to very much, how the Olympics can be a space and continue to be a space of protest. But they also overlook the historical legacy of terror, of war, that's also invoked when we say the Olympic Games. And now we're adding the term pandemic, right? It says, quote, the unique nature of the Olympic Games enables athletes from all over the world to come together in peace and harmony. And I read that, I think, except for, you know, the terrorist attacks in 1972 and 1996. The IOC says, quote, Rule 50 of the Olympic Charter provides a framework to protect the neutrality of sport and the Olympic Games. It states, no kind of demonstration or political, religious, or racial propaganda is permitted in any Olympic site venue or other area, end quote. The IOC laments what could happen to the games if this is violated. It says, the life's work of the athletes around us could be tarnished and the world would quickly no longer be able to look at us competing and living respectfully together as conflicts drive a wedge between individuals, groups, and nations, end quote. Below that is listed places where you can, quote, express your views, end quote, at the Olympic Games. When we talk about something like protest, it's very open-ended. Is protest what you have to hold aside for it to be a protest? Do you have to say something? Is there something that's warm? And the IOC has defined protest as displaying any political messaging, including signs or armbands, gestures of a political nature, like a hand gesture or kneeling, refusing to follow the ceremony's protocol. So given the recent history, um, it's interesting that kneeling has been added to this list. Hand gesture, which we'll get to very soon, thinking about what it means for Tommy Smith and John Carlos on the Olympic podium in 1968 to have a black fist in the air. And then tracing that lineage to someone like Gwen Berry at the Pan American Games, who also raised her fist in 2018. So there's a very poignant way that they are invoking history and the current political moment. 50 years, if we go to 1968 to 2018, of protests by athletes. As discussed in the Jules Boykoff text we read, the chapter titled Cold War Games, the second half of that chapter, which we didn't talk about as much that I kind of want to bring back, bridges boycott and protest before we're thinking about what it means for countries to step out and say, we won't take part in those games if this country is going to be there, or we refuse to take part in these games until this is acknowledged. But right now, thinking about how that connects to the individualized protest of an athlete, for example, we take something like the 1968 Olympics and really um, thinking about even before the Olympic Games start, acknowledging that there's organizing around the hypervisibility of the Olympics by activists in Mexico City where the Olympics are being held. When the massacre happens at Tlateloco Plaza, that is when student protesters 
were outside and were um, killed or injured by the Mexican government. There's a way this was quickly kind of pushed under the rug because Mexico City was about to host the Olympics. This combined with the tumultuous nature of 1968 with global protests happening, anti-war movement, labor movement, all of these things are happening around the world. You think about what it means in a space, and I want to point to two sets of protests in particular. The first is one you're probably very familiar with, if not for the visual, but for the ways that we commonly invoke this as kind of quintessential athlete protest. We think about the 200 meter medal ceremony with Tommy Smith and John Carlos winning gold and bronze. Peter Norman of Australia wins the silver medal. And then as they stand on the podium, you see Smith and Carlos, they're barefoot. They have one glove on a piece. Their fists are raised. Peter Norman is wearing an OPHR, Olympic Project for Human Rights, pin in solidarity with them. And what we have is this really rich moment if we think about the Olympics being a place where there's so many languages spoken, right? What does it mean to do something silently? I think it's the same kind of thing we'll talk about with someone like Gwen Berry, Rose Robinson. Refusal and silent gesture does a lot in terms of translating an activist moment, a protest moment, I should say. And then thinking about what that means in terms of this being 1968, the first um, broadcast Olympics in Technicolor. Um, So that's why I've posted the photo in color, a very different one. It's not them with the fists raised, but you see it and it's um, it reminds you that 1968 wasn't that long ago. I think we're used to seeing this grainy black and white photo that seems like forever ago. And I think for me, when I see the photo, the original photo with the fist raised in color, or I see alternate versions, I'm reminded that first of all, this was a televised event. I'm reminded that This wasn't as long ago as maybe we would like to think. I also want to think about what that means in terms of that being this central figure, um, central image in terms of a longer history legacy thought process of Black athlete activism, how it's very male-centric, the way it's very visceral, it's a very um, iconic you know, it's viral before viral, the way that we see all of the newspapers that are reacting to it. One one journalist, uh, Brett Musburger, says, quote, one gets a little tired of having the United States run down by athletes who are enjoying themselves at the expense of the country. Protesting and working constructively against racism in the United States is one thing, but airing one's dirty laundry before the entire world during a fun and games tournament was no more than a juvenile gesture by a couple of athletes who should have known better, end quote. And that's on page 105-106 of the Boykoff text. I think I'm always kind of interested in this Brent Musburger article that's written after that, where Brent Musburger is having this very visceral reaction. He calls them black skinned stormtroopers at one point. If you're a Star Wars fan, you know that's not a compliment. And so I'm interested in both the idea, he says, the fun and games tournament. He's acting like we're just playing beer pong in a backyard, right? Um, And we understand it to be a global game with political ramifications at this point, but he calls it a juvenile gesture. And I was thinking about a lot of the 
rhetoric around this, protesting working constructively against racism is one thing, but doing it this way is another. Um, reminds me a lot of the rhetoric around Colin Kaepernick. And so it's obvious that I'm, I'm drawing this parallel between black male athletes from the United States that are protesting during the playing of the national anthem. So it's an obvious kind of connection between 68 and 2016. But I also want to think about how its idea of both kind of ruining the fun, this idea of it being kind of a prank, a juvenile gesture to me is like egging someone's car. I don't know if people still do that. But I think, you know, the idea of, okay, protests and working constructively against racism, that is something that Musburger finds something that's commendable. Um, but this idea of, I like what you're doing, I don't like the way that you're doing it. I, I like the cause that you stand for, I don't like that. As much of um, the things that we hear around protests, and I want to think about another, you know, athlete that in that exact same Olympics, 1968, Vera Kozlowska, um, who's rec- representing Czechoslovakia. And at the time, she's she, in many ways, you know, Tommy Smith and John Carlos had this interesting relationship that we won't go into today between um, the Olympic Project for Human Rights, which was started by Harry Edwards, Dr. Harry Edwards, who teaches at Berkeley currently, um, and thinking about what it means for their activism was not just this sporadic juvenile gesture. Rather, it was a part of a larger organizing effort that was about solidarity globally, thinking about um, that same kind of question of whether South Africa under apartheid should be allowed to compete. And also about um, thinking about what it means for this is the most leverage that they might have as Black athletes in the 60s. Why not fully kind of try to push for that? So the Olympic Project for Human Rights, if we go to the Dave Zirin piece titled The Explosive 1968 Olympics, the founding statement of the Olympic Project of Human Rights says that any Black person who allows himself to be used the above manner, we'll get to the himself part in a second, is a traitor to his country because he allows racist whites the luxury of resting assured that those Black people in the ghettos are there because that is where they want to be. So we ask, why should we run in Mexico only to crawl home? And I love the idea of running in Mexico and crawling. I love that that dynamic. So they had five central demands, the Olympic Project for Human Rights. The first was to restore Muhammad Ali's title. Um, Muhammad Ali had been stripped of his title in 1967 for refusing to fight in Vietnam. The second, remove Avery Brundage as head of the USOC. Brundage was read by them as a notorious white supremacist. They're connecting what happened in 1936 and his role in keeping the Olympics in Berlin. He had also previously praised Hitler's regime at a rally in Madison Square Garden. And those are things he did as head of the USOC. As head of the IOC, he also had opposed the entry of women as competitors in various sports. They also wanted South South Africa and Rhodesia to be disinvited from the Olympic Games. And for them, that was about solidarity across borders, connecting kind of this Black liberation struggle occurring in these two places. They want to boycott the New York Athletic Club, which was notorious for not allowing people of color um, in as members. And they wanted more black coaches hired for the U.S. Olympic Committee sports. Now, Zyra kind of complicates the boycott narrative in his piece by including unsupportive voices within the black press. You know, one of them was this 
um, no, very well-known sports reporter, Doc Young, who says, I have nothing but contempt for people who complain because we don't have enough heroes, but who spend their time trying to destroy the showcases for which heroes are produced and displayed. The charge that, quote, America is as racist as South Africa, end quote, is the most extravagant lie in our times, he says. Jesse Owens, Joe Lewis were also leveraged by the USOC um, to push back against any potential protest or boycott. There were a lot of athletes at the time that felt the same way that Doc Young felt. They felt like it was more important to have representation on the Olympic team so that others could see African-Americans represented in a positive light on a global stage than to use that stage to boycott. And so that's something that, you know, thinking about the previous podcast and thinking about um, what it means in terms of the nation state, deciding to protest or boycott um, really has these ramifications, whether you choose to go or choose not to go. There's arguments that are made on both sides. But the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in April of 1968 turned the tide for some anti-boycott athletes. And, and some of that is the anti-boycott athletes. I really want to speak to the difficulty of making the decision to boycott is really one, when you think about some sports, you have one shot at the Olympics. And if that is your year, it's really hard to turn that down as much as you might believe in a particular cause. And so I really like thinking about these athletes that are also having these protest moments. I'm thinking about what that means as typically these are very young people. These are people that have a lot at risk at home and abroad. And I think that thinking about what the the sacrifice, the potential cost of not competing or choosing to compete and then staging a protest in such a global way. I think about that a lot. And I also think about what the ramifications, the consequences of that that moment can be that can last your entire life. One thing that you choose to do in your 20s can affect the rest of your life. So a lot of the athletes that were anti-boycott also felt that winning medals could protect them from racism when they returned home. And we know for from previous experience and from previous athletes that that was not always the case, that people came home and still couldn't eat certain places. Um, and for those that, you know, what John Carlos said is, you know, quote, even if you won the medal, it's not going to save your mama. It's not going to save your sister or children. It might give you 15 minutes of fame, but what about the rest of your life? End quote. So for him, it's thinking about doing this protest might affect the rest of my life, but also not doing it and going home. I might find I lost my one opportunity to stand up in the rest of my life. I'm going to be thinking about this because I'm going to be in the exact same situation that I was in before I went and won a gold medal. Lee Evans, another member of the Olympic team that year in track and field said, the athletes of course voted down the boycott. I was hoping it was going to be voted down because I wanted to run in the Olympics. I knew that this would happen and the proposal was a way for us to get leverage. Tom and I had talked about it and I said, let's say we're going to boycott so we can get some things done, but we all know that we were going to run in Mexico. Push comes to shove, we were going to be there, end quote. So the idea of trying to have it both ways, I feel like Lee Evans is this example of someone that was like, I want to be involved in this. I want us to push for change. 
but I also want to run in Mexico, which I think is also a really fair feeling of saying, I want to use this for leverage to push for change, but I also can't give up on my dream. And I think, I think that's a really fair, I feel like, you know, it's really easy for us to say what we would or wouldn't do in these situations, these historical contexts. But I feel like I would be a Lee Evans. I would be someone, you know, rooting for for us to vote down the boycott because I want to run, but I do want to make or feel like I was part of a historic moment of making some sort of change. The OPHR also wrote a statement regarding the massacre, which had largely been kind of covered up and ignored by various uh, Olympic committees, as well as the IOC had kind of smoothed it over um, with the Mexican government, given that um, the massacre at the plaza had happened right before the Olympic Games. There are a few things that I would like to focus on um, as takeaways from the 1968 protest. I think first we have to talk about for a second, that there was history made on the track itself before the protest happened. On the second day of the Games, Smith had set a world record in winning the 200-meter gold, and Carlos had won the bronze. And so I want to start with the fact that there was this massive athletic achievement. There was this activist moment. There is the backlash. They were kicked out of the Olympic Village and sent home. And then there were the athletes that remained and, and deciding what they wanted to do um, in respect, in honor of Tommy Smith and John Carlos. And so there were athletes that put themselves on the other side of the conversation. Boxer George Foreman, now known more so for his grills than his boxing, and what was seen as a direct rebu- rebuke of Smith and Carlos, waved a small American flag to all four corners of the ring after winning the heavyweight goal. He kind of operated as a counter to them. There's a masterclass here to me in white allyship with someone like Peter Norman, who was there in solidarity, made the decision to stand in solidarity with them by wearing the OPHR pin, but then let them have the space. There's something about both being in solidarity, but not trying to upstage them or do exactly what they do. There's something about that that I think is really important um, and interesting. I want to think about the Harvard crew team, the Olympic crew team, all white and entirely from Harvard wrote a statement after the Smith and Carlos protest. They say, we as individuals have been concerned about the place of the black man in American society and their struggle for equal rights. As members of the U.S. Olympic team, each of us has come to feel a moral commitment to support our black teammates in their efforts to dramatize the injustices and inequities which permeate our society, end quote. So thinking about these small moments of solidarity that do mean something, and I think there's something about that that's important to take forward. It's also a masterclass in misogyny. We've said a lot about man and male this entire time. The OPHR and the actions of Smith and Carlos were really a really strong pushback to the hypocrisy at the heart of the Olympics regarding politics and this being a supposedly apolitical space. But women were were largely shut out. Everything was about reclaiming manhood in the OPHR, um, And then it was also the way that women athletes, black women athletes that were competing after Smith and Carlos were major voices of solidarity for them. Wyomi Tyus, who was the anchor of the women gold medal women, gold medal winning women's four by one team said in her presser after, I'd like to say that we dedicate our relay win to John Carlos and Tommy Smith. Later, she would say, It appalled me that men simply took us for granted. They assumed we had no minds of our own and that we do whatever we were told, end quote. 
So thinking about that as it being a male-centric thing, there is the solidarity, there are these moments of promise, and then you get sent home and thinking about what the cost of protest is, the fact that there aren't jobs for them. John Carlos's wife commits suicide less than 10 years after their protest. They're judged by, you know, some for doing too much. Other people wanted them to do more. It's like the, it's a lose-lose in that in that case. And I really want to leave it there, but I want to talk next time about that cost of protest and what happens after. And carrying that from 1968 to 2018, we'll look at Vera Kozlovska has promised. And then we'll also talk about Felisa Lalesa, um, a runner from Ethiopia, who also has a protest at the Olympics. Thanks for listening.